0: Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ginawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia. And I'm talking today with Azamat Junisbay. Azamat is a professor of sociology at Pitza College. Azamat focuses in his work on public opinion research, including stratification and inequality, with a particular focus on the Central Asian region. Azamat was born and grew up in Kazakhstan. And we're going to talk a little bit about Azamat's Personal experience in that regard as well on the podcast today. So, thanks for joining me today, Azamat. Oh,
1: thank you for having me.
0: As I mentioned, you yourself grew up in Kazakhstan, starting out your life when Kazakhstan was a part of the Soviet Union. And then, of course, at some stage, Kazakhstan transitioned from being a part of the Soviet Union to, in 1991, declaring independence as its own state. Could you describe that transition in Kazakhstan society and politics from being a part of the Soviet Union to becoming an independent state?
1: Absolutely. Thank you for the question. Yeah, I think the transition was, I don't know, I mean, I always struggle for words to describe that, but it was just incredibly um, comprehensive, right? incredibly dramatic that it wasn't just economic reform or some political reform, right? It was really the, the way you imagine the world right? The way you saw what is good, what is bad. What words are good words as opposed to bad words? Everything changed, right? So I mean, literally, I remember, you know, the word entrepreneur, it came to have a a positive connotation. And that wasn't the case when I was growing up, right? So things like that, they were just really profound things. I remember, you know, some time in sort of the 80s, when Perestroika began, right? Gorbachev's Perestroika began, and things gradually then began to unravel. And then one day showing up to uh, school, and classmate of mine's Lava, he took off his uh, red uh, scarf and put it next to the entrance to the classroom and said, Oh, you can wipe your feet on this. So like, we're done with this stuff. The scale of that, I always try to find a way to describe the, just how dramatic this transition was to my kids. And I feel like I almost always fall short. It's just, it's really hard to describe this. I mean, well, the heroes, we learned in school, you know, about Pavlik Moroza. So there's a story of a boy, right, who famously betrays his own father to the authorities for, you know, storing some extra grain over them. And so we celebrated something like that. Just the, the, the dramatic nature of this changes was enormous. And on the more personal level, I remember learning at some point that this particular park, not too far from where I grew up, and I learned that, much of Kazakh intelligentsia, including people in my own family, were executed in a shooting range that was in sort of these dungeons underneath the park that I used to play at. And I never even sort of thought about it. Certainly no one in my family talked about it. At oh, the more macro level, I mean, everything was just so different, right? It's the borders, the borders that are very real now and mean something to people now, they didn't really function in a way that we think of borders. We didn't have national currency, we had Russian rubles. I remember being an undergraduate student at Kazakh State University and being told, oh, okay, so on such and such a date, each person can bring this amount of rubles so that it could be exchanged for uh, 200 tenge. That was how much one person was allowed to exchange. At this point, I think a bus fare is 300 tenge. Welfare state disappeared completely. That's one thing that still people talk about. People talk about having had free education, free healthcare subsidized housing, that all seemed to vanish overnight. I remember in my family, so my mom is an economist by training, so she was building these financial models for this large infrastructure projects. But all these research institutes, they just seem to have kind of disappeared overnight, right? And the guy who was in charge of the institute all of a sudden managed to privatize the building. So now he had a gigantic office building to his name, but the institute was no more. I remember coming home one day also, I was in high school, and I see my aunt and my uncle just arguing, and, and I said, "What's going on?" And my uncle said, "Can you imagine? His sister just used all of the money that our parents saved up for decades and decades and decades to re- to reupholster the sofa. He couldn't process that because all of a sudden that money was worthless. It was paper. If she didn't reupholster the sofa, probably it would have been enough, you know, a couple of months later to even do that. But my uncle was just like, "She's crazy. She used up all our parents' savings to reupholster the sofa, right?" People just could not process this. We had a couple of years in the 90s, it was over a thousand percent a year inflation. And just, at least in my family, people did not have the financial IQ to even know what to do with that. Like, how do you defend against that? Maybe try to buy a little bit of a, like a little plot of land or golden jewelry or something. Another thing that I think is still relevant today, there was this... Massive conversion, essentially, of political capital, of connections and being in positions of power to economic capital. And all of a sudden, all these directors and managers became just insanely wealthy, right? And Kazakhstan, of course, is absolutely blessed with natural resources. So it has a relatively small population, I think 18 million. It's huge. It's ninth largest country in the world. And when the privatization happened, all these incredible resources just ended up in the hands of very few people. I remember at some point in the sort of, I think, early 2000s when oil was over $100 a barrel, Kazakhstan had more billionaires than France. And it's just the juxtaposition of that kind of wealth that seemed to have come from nowhere, certainly not through any effort or hard work or, you know, special talents and you know people trying to make ends meet i remember also i want to say it's ninety five, nineteen ninety five. 1995 my aunt is a professor of chemistry at the largest university here with you know decades of experience and all of a sudden you know her salary is a hundred dollars a month and she's struggling to feed her daughter basically so she's having to take up you know some like extra teaching working as a tutor for some kids right after work because her professor salary is not enough and at that time Kazakhstan is also opening up. So I just remember this bizarre thing. I learned that there there will be uh, interviewing people for potential translator positions for a British television crew. It was called Portobello Media. They received a grant from the uh, British Know-How Fund to come to Kazakhstan and teach uh, local filmmakers how to make soap operas because that was not a genre that existed. And I was a translator for a sound guy. But my salary as a really crappy translator at the time was $500 a month when my aunt... As a professor, I was making $100 a month. Nothing was normal anymore. Explosion of inequality, disappearing welfare state, everything was just completely disruptive.
0: Was it obvious in Kazakh society that Kazakhstan Mm -hmm. would become an independent state or was there conflict around that if some people maybe felt under the Soviet Union life was more stable or, you know, more secure or more predictable? I think
1: Kazakhstan becoming independent would be fair to describe as something that happened to it as opposed to something that, you know, people fought for. The Soviet Union collapsed under its own weight and under the contradic- the weight of the contradictions, right, that existed in the system. Many people just could not believe this was happening. So I think independence just happened to them. I've had people argue before, and I think there is some logic to that, that in a way it's sort of the birth defect for some of these countries is that independence and sovereignty wasn't struggled for perhaps, right? It just kind of happened to them. And so, I mean, the most notable tension I think, was the 1986 events, right? So when Moscow was an appointed an ethnic Russian person who's never been to Kazakhstan to head the Communist Party here, and there was a uh, sort of an uprising of the youth that was crushed brutally. And it was, I think, one of the first, if not the first one, such uprising in, in what was in the Soviet Union. And so there was certainly, I think, among a lot of people, a desire for more autonomy or, you know, more decision-making power. But I think for a lot of folks, if I just talk to people in my own family, even extended family, what they remember about the old times is stability. They had sort of dignity as far as economic security, pensions, healthcare, things like that. And all of a sudden... You know, they were know, outside looking at where, you know, some people just got tremendously rich. And I think that's true for, majority, for the majority of people.
0: Mm-hmm. Another legacy of the breakdown of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. is that many states that were formerly part of the Soviet Union were left with not only sizable populations that identify as ethnically Russian, but also Russian mm-hmm. language as oftentimes a key language used within the state. And, you know, with Russia's military ventures in the last couple of decades into Georgia in 2008 and then Ukraine in 2014 and now, of course, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, there's been kind of a renewed focus on the tensions and fractures as well that might remain yeah, in really? societies. What is the the patterning of those factors in Kazakhstan and How did you experience that or what was your awareness of that growing up Mm -hmm, in Kazakhstan? mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. In Central Asia, with the five republics, right, of the five republics, Kazakhstan definitely was the most Russified. Kazakhstan was also the place that had the lowest percentage of, so to speak, titular nationality, right? So the ethnic Kazakhs. I think the last Soviet census was in uh, 1989, and I think, according to that census, Kazakhs were just around 50% of the population, and the rest were not Kazakhs. And then if you looked at the desirable places to be, first and foremost, Almaty, the capital at the time, Kazakhs were less than 20% of the people who were in the capital, right? As a kid growing up in the 80s, going to school in the 80s in Almaty... As an ethnic Kazakh, I was always just one of very few Kazakh kids in my class. I went to a school where Russian was a language of instruction, where all the subjects were taught in Russian. And Kazakh, we, we did have a couple of hours a week, just like English. And Kazakh was clearly the one class that people were not taking seriously. In Almaty, right, even back then, it had over a million people and, you know, hundreds of schools. Of these hundreds of schools, there were two schools only in the whole city that all instruction would be in Kazakh. That just shows how marginalized the position of Kazakh became in the capital. And There are different parts of Kazakhstan, right? So there are some regions that are far more Kazakh. Kazakhs were definitely prevalent in the rural areas. And then in sort of some parts in the west of the country, some parts of the south of the country, much, much less so in sort of the cities, certainly the language of the university, language of medicine, language of social mobility was Russian. So I remember my mom sharing this story with me about her own mother, and her own mother you know, was bilingual, right? She was fluent, wrote, and actually published poetry in Kazakh, right? But she she insisted that her children, she had four children, all born in the 1940s, that they all need to speak uh, Russian. And she told them that if you want to survive, if you want to thrive, you need to have Russian. Then 1991 happens, right? Soviet Union collapses. And I remember I'm in high school at the time, and a lot of fear among my russian classmates that they will now be discriminated against a lot of concern and it was fascinating that sort of in my social group right among the kids i graduated with the vast majority it was sort of a you know prestigious school in the central and was kind of the heavy math emphasis most of them entered russian universities and never came back and so you really ended up with this exit of the Russian population from Kazakhstan. The collapse of the share of the Russian population has been quite dramatic, right? So it went from being almost half to being about, you know, just over 20% now in 30 years. There is also, there are no longer restrictions on Kazakhs being able to settle in Almaty or to move to Almaty, right? Because you had to have a propiska, rights or residence permit. You had to have a good reason to be in Almaty. Maybe you had, you know, a job studying and all of a sudden those limitations were gone also all the collective farms all the you know the way of life in rural areas disappeared so you have this absolute flood of ethnic kazakhs kazakh speaking kazakhs moving to urban centers moving to the city specifically moving to Almaty, to the capital on a personal level how i experienced that that all of a sudden i could see oh there were more village people I've been in the U.S. for 25 years, but I come back regularly and do research and I have family here. And, you know, as time went by, I mean, more and more often I would get lectured instead of by cab drivers about, oh, how come you can't maintain conversation in Kazakh? And I would just be incredibly annoyed and be like, oh. You know, it's villagers, like they come to my city and they they dare they, lecture me about this stuff. So people complain, oh, you know, all these people from the villages are coming and you know they have no culture. And so it's incredibly classist. So there's a huge kind of a class dimension issue right there. And so people would go to sort of great lengths to, for example, to use the old Soviet era street names as a marker of like, well, I I was here for, you know, a long time as opposed to the new ones. And then, and but looking back now, it just makes me wince. I just so uncomfortable. Fast forwarding to the present time, The war, Russia's attack against Ukraine, I think has been so brazen and so sort of nakedly imperialistic that a lot of people just were super disturbed by it. And I have heard personally numerous folks saying, I feel weird about not being able to use Kazakh. So I had my cousin started in our communications and chats. He started using English to talk to him instead of using Russian because he, neither one of us you know, is that fluent in
0: Kazan. Mm-hmm. I am interested to understand further about how Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine has been perceived in Kazakhstan because in some ways, obviously, very different societies and very different countries, but there are some maybe similar patterning of some fault lines across those kind of social identity lines as, you know, that legacy of having been a part of the Soviet Union. How has Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, obviously it's going to be complex and different amongst different parts of the society, but broadly how has it been perceived in Kazakhstan?
1: One thing to understand that Kazakhstan has been an authoritarian state for three decades, more or less, with, until recently, very little freedom of information and freedom of speech and media that do a lot of self-censorship. So as a result, I think the government succeeded in sort of decimating local media. A lot of people watch Russian television, there's Russian propaganda channels and whatnot. And so I think those who rely on TV as the main source of information, and especially to those who watch a lot of Russian television. I'm afraid we're, you know, for Putin, in support of whatever it is that his propaganda folks are pushing at the time. But as you said, there are fascinating and terrifying parallels with Ukraine, right? So Ukraine has about 20% Russian population. Kazakhstan has about 20% Russian population. Ukraine has a long border with Russia. We have an incredibly long border with Russia, some 7,000 kilometers. Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his famous 1991 essay about sort of, you know, the way forward for Russia, of course, famously wrote about Ukraine being, you know, kind of an imagined state, something that doesn't really exist, that really belongs in this Russian family. And then literally on the following page, he had a very similar argument about Kazakhstan, that Kazakhstan is also just uh, something that was, you know, somehow Russian gift or something. And then Russian politicians periodically, from Putin on down, say outrageous things right so putin famously a few years ago said giving nazarbayev a compliment giving the previous president a compliment saying oh you know he deserves sort of great accolades because he created a state out of nothing where there was nothing before and none of this is lost right on on local people so yes those who watch a lot of russian tv those who are under the spell of the propaganda I'm more likely to support Putin. But one thing that I've been thinking about increasingly recently is that actually just demographically, Kazakhstan is a very young country. The vast majority of the demographic growth comes from Kazakhs. The majority of ethnic Kazakhs are from rural areas. And they, unlike my family, they haven't lost Kazakh they consume content in Kazakh they consume news in Kazakh and the thing about Russian propaganda it does not reach those who don't consume it I think there is a sizable and very rapidly growing population of Kazakh people who just are not touched by that propaganda because they consume information in Kazakh among people like me there is a growing interest in learning Kazakh and growing discomfort with being unable to speak Kazakh I mean for me it's really been it started this almost a soul-searching process because I just thought, okay, for years and years and years in the U.S., I would say, well, yeah, I speak Russian. And people would say, well, are you Russian? I would say, no, 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 I'm not Russian. I'm Kazakh. But of course, for most people, that doesn't mean anything. And then I'd say, well, Kazakhstan was very thoroughly colonized, so I speak Russian. But usually it would stop there. Or sometimes if someone is very inquisitive, I would tell them, Oh, there were a hard day in schools that you know, had Kazakh language as a language of instruction. But then I've been thinking recently more and more about the contempt I felt for those who had less flawless Russian than my family does, the contempt who had any hint of Kazakh accent. And so it's been sort of disturbing and somewhat painful, you know, to to think, okay, so I lost the language and I have been most of my life was gonna kind of smug about it because it was a marker of sort of the relatively higher status of my family or whatnot, educationally. But I didn't just lose the language, I really began. I guess to associate Kazakh with backwards, with being rural, with being uncultured, with being low status, and then I thought, how sick is this? Right? That's just terrifying. So how colonized you are in your own mind if you think that about your own culture? If you, if you think that just we went from sort of from my grandma who published poetry in Kazakh and you know her parents' peer Kazakh intelligentsia who were sort of you know destroyed in Stalin's purges. To me, feeling smug about not knowing Kazakh, right? How perverse is that? And so I think that certainly is something that has been triggered, I think, by the war. And it's been uncomfortable. Just the realization of how thoroughly colonized, just how messed up my own mind has become. And I don't think that I was that unique. I think the relatively privileged urban Kazakhs, my story would be very recognizable to to that. I think it's seeing Ukraine struggle against Russian aggression and hearing Russian politicians talk about, you know, sort of their vision for how everything around them is really Russia or, you know, temporarily being used by someone else has awakened this sense of Kazakh identity, certainly in me and in in many other people.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess the whole sort of process of colonization is most insidious when it really gets inside our own minds and our own way of thinking. And we start to believe in those narratives of what is the privileged culture or behavior or way of being in a society.
1: I wrote a little bit about this on Twitter and it was fascinating. People wrote to me, people from Ukraine wrote, uh, responded to me about this, people from Belarus, Irish folks, people from Scotland. And the common theme in all these people's comments was, yes, I grew to be ashamed of my own language because it was seen as the language of the poor, it was seen as the culture of the poor, and you don't want that, obviously, for yourself. And so that feeling of internalized shame, people from all over the world, someone from Pakistan even wrote, right? There, and there are, all, there are all these insulting terms in different places for people who could not properly speak the colonizers' language, and this feeling of shame, At the end of the day, isn't it almost self-hatred, right? It's it's sort of you—you are afraid, you are ashamed or embarrassed of who you are, and that is insidious, right? That is probably the the worst level of that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, internalized shame. I feel like that kind of captures it. On a tangent, I'm Jewish, and sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel like I don't want to be like too loud, too ethnic. Of course, also in some ways, it often intersects with issues around safety and security. Maybe in the actual current contemporary context maybe your parents or grandparents Mm -hmm. so we're seeing ripple effects from Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine but also most recently with Putin's announcement of mobilization huge numbers of young Russians actually coming across the borders into Kazakhstan putting a little bit of an eye to the future like do you think that Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine is also a bit of a turning point for Kazakhstan in terms of consolidating a more Kazakh identity apart from Russia. I mention those Russian citizens coming into Kazakhstan because I believe Mm -hmm. that also within Kazakhstan, it's not necessarily a welcome development as well from the point of view of Mm -hmm. Kazakh society.
1: Mm -hmm. This is a development that we will not know the full uh, consequences for a while. I mean, it's happening as we speak. However, a couple of preliminary observations can be made, I believe, at this point. One thing is that I think that this is the impact is felt differently by different social groups. I think it is felt most immediately by those who are economically vulnerable. So, right now, if you look at social media posts in Kazakhstan, there are stories after stories after stories of people being evicted by their landlords because the landlord realizes that they can rent this apartment for double the price to, you know, five Russian guys or something like that. And that is creating a lot of resentment. However, if you're a landlord, if you're a restaurant owner, coffee shop owner, some kind of retail establishment owner, then yeah, you have this influx of people with money coming in, not a bad thing, but it really depends. And I think in fairness, the first group is much larger than the second group, right? So the number of people who are economically vulnerable, just numerically, it's that's a much bigger group. Another thing, A lot is going to depend on the attitude of those who are arriving just because in Kazakhstan, everyone who lived during the late Soviet Union or even when there was a kind of a larger Russian presence or traveled in Russia knows how incredibly arrogant and racist Russian people can be towards Central Asians. It's not uncommon even for very liberal Progressive Russian folks to just say casually racist things about Central Asians and not even notice. Right? If those who are here escaping the draft are clear in their support for Ukraine, in their opposition to Putin, they are more likely to be getting a cordial reception. Anyone who shows disrespect, I think, toward local culture, or there is a whiff of a little bit of arrogance or this imperial attitude, which is again, I cannot emphasize this enough, was very very common among Russians towards Central Asians, that will probably be met with pretty harsh uh, reactions. Because of this time of tension and war, a lot of people are extra sensitive. You know, there there has been this controversy actually on, on Twitter recently about a very talented Jewish-Russian public figure, Maxim Katz. is a very outspoken opponent of uh, Putin he has daily videos that you know get millions of views he recorded this video and he said that oh shame on you know estonia latvia Lithuania, finland for refusing to take you know people allow in people with russian people with tourist visas kudos to the countries who take them because you know a country that takes these russians will win because they're cultured educated rich entrepreneurial spirits and it was fascinating i had different people watch that video i had russian people watch the video even those who are principled Putin opponents, and they were like, yeah, he's making sense. And then I saw, I had and read some great ukra- reactions from Ukrainians, and they said, look at this arrogant bull****. So he is saying that wherever Russian people go, we should be sort of kissing the ground they step on, right, because of how cultured and, and and rich they are. I had some Kazakh friends listen to that, and they all also caught that. They were like, yeah, he's talking about, you know, positives. He just has this presumption that somehow... You know, they're bringing light. There's something about the way for decades and decades and decades, if not longer, that Russian people were taught to think about themselves, that the Europeans and the Americans are the colonial powers, and Russia is always the bringer of culture and education. And to call it the colonizer is, is crazy. But I think until and unless this is examined by Russians themselves, and they come to terms with this. No one around Russia is safe because they genuinely, many of them, even the educated ones, do not see themselves as colonizers. And they are so puzzled, oh, why do Lithuanians not want to just open their borders to Russian you know, tourists? It's like, are you serious? Do you really not understand why they not want to open the borders? And either you're very cynical and you understand, or there's this incredible blind spot that you genuinely don't understand. And so I think people will be watching what well, the attitude is toward Kazakhstan and Central Asia. Because, I mean, from Kazakhstan, there weren't really very many labor migrants, but from Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, there are I know, hundreds of thousands of labor migrants who went to Russia to try and make a living. And when they're in Russia, they deal with racism, violence. And these memories are very real. And so now you have this bizarre situation where the Russians are the ones fleeing. And so how it plays out, we'll see. But yeah, I mean, in Kazakhstan, you know, another fascinating thing is, is just in terms of even Kazakh official reaction, the fact that uh, after the invasion on March 6th, there was a large rally, pro-Ukraine rally in Almaty, in, in Kazakhstan, that was allowed to go ahead against Russia and for Ukraine and whatnot. And that was fascinating because Kazakhstan doesn't really have a long history of allowing these kinds of rallies. The fact that government allowed that to go ahead was fascinating. And the fact that even one like that happened is is fascinating
0: mm-hmm. thank you so much azamat this oh, has been course. a really fascinating and thought-provoking for me personally and a very rich discussion so i really appreciate it
1: thank you so much for inviting me it's been an honor to receive.
0: thanks for listening and thanks to mr smith for our theme music